we submit to the lectionary reading here at this church, and there's a reason for that, and I'm becoming more and more, um, more and more in love with it. And also, we do the morning office and evening office every day, and so it submits to the same reading. And if, and I was looking about five or six weeks ago about what the text might be today, and I and I don't know. I just looked at it and said, "You got to be kidding me, really." Today's gospel reading is not much unlike the reading that I've, I've chosen today to speak on today is from Exodus chapter 32. And when I begin praying for this sermon, I'm going to put the text reading inside my sermon preaching today. And so, But when I started reading this text from Exodus 32, and I began praying for this sermon, I looked and realized quickly I was wading through some of the most hotly contested questions of all theology, Christian theology, across all written Christian theology, across all modern history. And I have 35 minutes to do so. So what I did was I was like, well, let's think. It's, it's common time kind of. And so I, I was like, maybe I'll just speak on what is on my heart. And I woke up every morning and the, the Lord kept drawing me back to this. And so I started immersing myself in these texts and saying, God, what are you trying to speak to me? I drew as much counsel as I could. And I almost left this text for today because I was reading it very superficially. Like, this is scary to talk about to people you love and to people that you do not want to misunderstand you. But the Holy Spirit kept drawing me closer to him to speak a specific word. And unfortunately, this specific word is on the other side of some of the questions of these texts. The text that we're going to read through today is complicated because it is between God and his servant Moses. It's a complicated exchange about sin and the brokenness that was displayed. And if you read this text, which we're going to today, it addresses three important questions that everyone here asks. No matter how deep you are in Christianity or how, how, how uninformed you are of Christianity, when you come here today, you are going to ask some of these questions. One, is God an angry God? Two, does God really need my input? We do prayers of the people. We talk about praying, but does God really need my input? Three, if so, do I serve an indecisive God? You see, these questions, I want to clarify, are not the point of my sermon. But the questions that have been discussed, these very questions that have been discussed for thousands of years by much more qualified and much more intelligent people, but, and I know that, and so realizing the gravitas needed to even attempt those questions, one of those questions, I could spend the rest of my life explicating. But to even attempt these questions makes any preacher like myself humbled to talk about these passages. But with all sincerity and honesty, I cannot whitewash these texts. That's why I love that we do naked reading of the text here. Naked reading meaning we just read the Bible every week. I love that because it makes you walk away and go, hmm, wonder what that meant. God Jesus and gnashing of teeth, hmm. But I can't whitewash over this because I want to de-weaponize a false understanding at least of these questions. Because when they're de-weaponized, they will stop the paralysis 
that follows every follower of God from action. Because if when these questions are weaponized wrongly, we are left here in a questioning fog. Is God really listening to me? So the text says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because of your people. Now Moses is up in the mountain, and he says, Because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. At that point, I would get a little offended at God, right? You? You called me. I didn't want to do it in the first place. Those people whom you've brought up have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who have brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. He's telling this to Moses. Don't quit bothering me so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then, now this is the part where I am glad I was not Moses. Because I'd be like, okay, I'll do this. Then I will make you into a great nation. So here's the question. Do you serve an angry God? I can't answer that completely today because one, I don't feel I'm qualified. If Thomas Aquinas struggled with this, oh, little old Nate in Tulsa, Oklahoma is going to have a little trouble himself. But when we hear these words, here's de-weaponizing, what I mean by de-weaponizing, though. When we hear these words, anger, jealousy, wrath, our minds immediately race to the most painful moments of our life or most embarrassing things that have been said or done in haste. That's where they go. When we read the text and it says anger, it says wrath, it says judgment, it says jealousy, a discussion on the anger or wrath of God immediately brings out pain of those who've been mistreated by angry leaders, by wrathful leaders, by bad leaders in the name of God sometimes. And worse, it feeds sometimes, some of us maybe, the wrongful use of anger that we want to see others treat others with anger and wrath. And we get excited by that. Go get them. Defend righteousness. Defend God. To make things worse, the church has used these texts sometimes to frighten people to altars. And sometimes it worked. Here's the unfortunate side effect. It's a mischaracterization of God and it makes God in our image of anger. It makes God in our image of jealousy. And we juxtapose this with a belief that God is love. And so we define God's anger as how we define anger. And then we try to define God's love as we define God's love. And you bring someone in for the first time. For one, it doesn't make sense. So I want you to understand, when the scripture talks about God's anger, and when it talks about God's, God, God being angry, or God having wrath, or God being jealous. Here's the one thing that you can de-weaponize misunderstanding. Understand this. These are actions and responses written by humans to humans using words that humans use. But many times it's confusing because while using words to describe God, we have to and must when talking about God, know this, God is not like 
us. And his ways are not our ways. He does not become vindictive. His anger is not personal. His anger doesn't brew up, then blow up. He doesn't have an emotional reaction against other people he hates. Matter of fact, his anger is actually action. And it's not against you. His anger is a response to sin. The things that separate his creation from him. That's when the Bible talks about anger. It is not at you. It is against the sin that separates us. Matter of fact, it, James even talks about why it's different. He says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. God's anger leads to righteousness. God's response leads to restoration, to preservation, to reconciliation. Because that's what God does. I actually read... Thomas Aquinas said it does not pertain to divine providence to destroy, but rather to preserve, say preserve, the nature of things. Matter of fact, when the scripture talks about in New Testament about God's jealousy, I'm a jealous God and I am a consuming fire. So many times people have talked about that in context to get us to this altar and raise our hands and say, God, don't consume me. That is absolutely wrong. He's jealous because he desires to commune with every nook and cranny of your life. And the fire of God's love is not meant to destroy you, but destroy every impurity and every sin in our lives so that we can be in communion with him. So his jealousy, fire, his fire is not focused at us. It's a fire that's caused to restore us. I don't know if you knew this, but I grew up Pentecostal. (laughs) Second question is, does God need my input? The text says this, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said. Why would your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth to turn from your fierce anger? Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise you, and I will be their inheritance forever. Moses looks like the good guy here. Now, this, I'm telling you, this, right, this one point right here, what Moses is doing, could, I could spend the rest of my life explaining its connection. It's humbling. But here's the one thing I want you to take from this. Is Moses looks like the good guy here, but it's not a fair reading to just say that Moses is convincing God to do something. It's wrong. God is interested in forming Moses in such a way that Moses also can act redemptively, pointing and reminding and telling God, not reminding as in God forgot, but Moses is saying, I am interceding to God in such a way that I don't need to defend God to the world. I just need to proclaim to God what I know about God and saying to God, you are not a God with evil intent. You are a God who remembers and who calls, who reconciles. In this call, God is joining in the heart of God. He's not reminding God, he's joining in the heart of God. 
And this call is seen throughout the Bible. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their land. Does God need our input? Absolutely not. But he created us in his image that when we go to God and we pray to God, he's not asking for our wisdom. He's saying, I'm saying, God, I'm going to proclaim to you what I know about you. God who created everything is a God who cares about what you say because he created it to be so. I can go to God and pray and say, God, do this, not because I'm manipulating God and by my faith, my faith is going to bring the heavens down. No, his glory is already in this earth. It's not about me. I'm not going to bring the glory down with my praise. I'm sorry. But he created us to remind us he cares what we say. Is God indecisive? And then we get to the final part of the text. Then the Lord relented. Some, some readings say the Lord changed his mind. That's the most confusing, right? Because my mom didn't even change her mind. When my mom on the way home, on, her, on the van ride home after church, my mom played the organ, she, and I sat in the front row, not because uh, I was more spiritual, but because my mom could actually reach me from the organ if I sat on the front row. Actually, my mom had a room downstairs where I got my spankings after the song service, and my parents have this story. They had this story that my mom picked me up after she got done with prayer worship and was almost to the stairs to the basement of a walker in Indiana, and the church heard me scream, pray, church, pray. <laughs> that is a true story. Is God indecisive? No. That's not fair either. Because if you're going to make it, an assessment about who you think God is, look at what God does, not just what the text says God does. So when God was asking questions and when God was talking to Moses, look at the end, what did God do? That is an honest reflection of the entire story. That truly is making a contextual decision that he's always looking for redemption. Judgment is just the end of a thing. It's gonna happen whether you like it or not. The cross tells me that God is always looking for redemption. That's what it tells me. So these questions are like foggy places to walk through that determine if our belief on this one question or statement, you serve a God who listens. Now, I'm going to ask you to take a risk with me at the end of this sermon today. But before we can take this risk together, you need to understand with me, we serve a God who listens. I'm saying all this to say, however you want to cut it, from any angle we arrive at one simple conclusion, yes, we live in a broken world, but we also serve a God whose concern for humanity pulls him in to listen to those who call in his name. And even through, all things will end. Even though there will be an end to all things, somewhere in the middle, our intercession, 
Our prayers matter because we serve a God who listens. You can go on social media and look at everyone who's making fun of Christians or those who say pray for the fires over, I think 50 people have now died. 49 people have died in these fires. Somewhere, somehow, we need to be reminded, those of us who, most of us are very initiated into, into Christianity and very initiated into a move of the Spirit in our lives because we've been around this a long time. And it is us who need to be reminded, not the, not the new people. It's usually us. It's like the, the old story of the man walking over his factory and, and showing the guys who would stick a widget in and it would get smashed. He'd stick a widget in and it would get smashed. He'd say, boy, I bet the new guys get a lot of broken thumbs on this. He says, never new guys. It's always the old guys are here because they're just used to what happens and they, they lose care and they get the thumb smashed. So when we talk about prayer, the people who really need this to be reminded that God is listening are those of who know a thing or two about how church works. Because under the sound of my voice are people who are initiated There's a lot of people who get what it means to work in the kingdom of God. But because of us, we've seen behind the wizard's curtain maybe. I'm not going to talk about you. I'll talk about myself. And I know a few things how this should work. And I would hate, this is what I would hate, is if we lose a childlike innocence that says, when I call on his name, he's listening. When I am calling on God, not for just my needs, that's the problem. That's why we do write a lot of our prayers. Because if you wrote down my, if I wrote down my own prayers, I would realize that a lot of times I'm talking about myself. But what if I believe that when I call on God's name, I have a childlike expectation. When I call, I have a call to worship here, I'm entering in expecting God to listen. When I worship in song, and, and Jacob and Langley do so amazing. When they lead us in worship and song and I raise my hands, then I'm actually believing that I serve a God who's listening. When we read the naked text, I'm being reminded God is listening. When I hear the word, we are being called to understand that God is listening. And here's, when we say prayers of the people, man, that little part of the sermon service is so, so unique, not quite yet, not, That's not their fault. That's not their fault. I said, here's what I said in the beginning of service. When I say prayers of the people, come up. They're amazing. I'm confusing. And they gave me the mic. When we say prayers of the people, it's relatively new to, to my background. So sometimes it's an odd place, but sometimes these prayers, beautiful prayers that are written on the screen, sometimes I want to scream out, yes, and I don't know that I have permission to do that. Now, and I'm saying that because it's my personality, right? When I explain to you the beauty of my daughter who's back there, the most beautiful child ever born, when I say that to you, I am going to say it that way. But it's not just that you need to be like me, but it is that we have to, as a community, understand that when we come together, that when we say we are praying to God and that these are prayer to God, we are not saying it is Pentecostal to do this, it is sacramental to do this, or high church to do this, and it's evangelical when we preach the word. No, we are saying that the people of God... Call out to God because we are the people of God. We 
stand here like Moses and the children of Israel wearing two mantles at the same time. We intercede for the brokenness of others while also being humbled knowing we don't deserve anything and we really need God. We stand facing God wearing two mantles for the church, knowing it is the bride of Christ and the place where God reveals himself to the world, but knowing that within the same church are the broken, the messy, and the needy. What I love about talking about intercession and what Moses was doing as an example to us is intercession is believing that God does not need defending And that the world needs less judges and more advocates and intercessors. It's a partnership that God created. When we see our culture and it's not going the way that we feel that it should be going, the first thing should not be to judge it. The first thing is we should turn to God and say, I want to remind you, God, about what I know about you. And I'm going to pray about this. There's fires in the West Coast. There is this going in our culture. There is brokenness in our city. There is racism in our towns. There is poverty and there are broken families. I'm reminding you, God, I am interceding. That's the greatest side effect is we stand facing God wearing two mantles for our world, knowing our world's beautiful, leadership's necessary, countries can do great things, knowing also all of those things have done great harm. So when we pray, we say, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's your kingdom forever and ever. Matter of fact, even Philippians gives us an example. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's God's promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm done with that. Here's what I'm calling us to do. Here in a moment, return to a childlike love for intercession. In other words, don't confuse, and I heard this quote this week in New York, don't confuse liturgy as dead. Liturgy can only be true or false. The work of the people, what we do here in this church can only be true or false. People are dead or alive. So when we pray, maybe we need to give ourselves permission to say in prayers of the people, when I see that written up there, I can say, yes, I join in with that. I'm not consuming words on a screen. I stand in place as a mediator as an intercessor in saying, I truly trust that God is listening. Intercessory prayer, I think, should be lively. Lively in that, lively as my wife Regina would consider lively is very different than I would consider lively. It's different. There's not very much, there's not enough money in this room to convince my wife to get up here and talk to you. So when I mean lively, I mean joyful, childlike, within naive, almost naive anticipation, 
that what I say matters to God. And that when we speak to God, he is listening. And that no matter how it works, we know that God will work in this world. See, we use the word around here, convergence. And here's what I don't want you to misunderstand. Convergence is not, we've got a bunch of evangelicals and a bunch of Presbyterians and a bunch of Pentecostals. And because we don't want to offend any of them, we're going to have all of those pizza sliced throughout our service. You know what you need to have permission to know that some of these practices the church has been doing Do you know why we do the Eucharist? I'm just going to tell you. This is a revelation for me. That when the church came out of hiding, you know one of the one things they said don't forget to do? This. So if that kept them, now there's a whole lot of other reasons. This is one of them. If that kept them, and I say I want to be like the first church, maybe this is where I start. And when I say prayers of the people, maybe the separate, uh, what's separating me sometimes from prayers of the people is not that it's dead, it's because I'm dead. And I'm disconnected. And I'm wanting to silo my faith to 45 minutes on Sunday. And don't be bothered that the rest of the world does need my prayer and God wants to partner with us in prayer. So here's the goal of convergence. Just be the church. When we hear prayers of the people, and if I hear over my ear someone go, yes, Lord, that's just being the church. It isn't being charismatic or Pentecostal. When we get up and Pastor Mark explains the word of God beautifully, it's not being evangelical. It's just being the church. When we get up and I, I get a chance to confess my sin because I do have a little bit of sin, <clears throat> that's not me being Presbyterian or me to be in the church. To believe in the power of the Holy Spirit is simply being the church. So here's what I want to do. I want to have a childlike joy to call out the Lord today and to not be seen as Pentecostal or charismatic. Awesome, guys. I didn't even say prayers of the people. It's simply us interceding. Here's what I want to do. Prayers of the people, in a moment we're going to do the creed. But prayers of the people historically have been broken up into six parts. We do five of them and we break those five into three. (laughs) I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. But what's going to happen is after we do the creed, we're going to first pray for the church. And what I want you to do is to your person to your right or your left, We're just going to do extemporaneous prayer for just a few moments. And we're going to pray for the church. If you're in the quiet and not comfortable with that, don't don't feel that. That's all right. Us Pentecostals got told we had to come to a table at some point. Everything's, Everything's new. And then we're going to sing. You hear us calling. And I want us, we're going to sing a, then I'll have a prayer up there. And I want you to respond with me this prayer. Then we're going to sing, Here You Hear Us Calling. And then the second prayer we're going to pray today is we're going to pray for our world. Whatever God is putting on your heart, but we're going to pray. We've got a lot of needs in our world right now. Amen? Then we're going to say a prayer together. And then we're going to do, You Hear Us Calling. And then finally, you know that to your right or your left, 
we have great needs in this church right now. We have people needing jobs in our community. We have people needing clarity. We have grave needs in this church, in this community. And I have been doing, I did youth ministry for 15 years and I can count on one hand how many people left our youth ministry because they didn't agree with my theology. I lost count how many times people left my community because they felt like no one in that community really cared what they were really needing. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So we're going to close. We're going to pray for our community. We have a prayer. And then we're going to sing together. So let's do this creed. Stand together.